Latrobe Asia will be holding a panel to discuss the outcome of the Indonesian election. It's on the 1st of May 2019 at the city campus of Latrobe University. So come along and hear Professor Vedi Hadiz from the University of Melbourne, Dr. Dirk Thompson, who you will hear in this podcast, and Dr. Gemma Purdy from Monash University. You can book your free ticket and find out more details at latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Hope to see you there. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. On April 17, close to 200 million eligible voters in Indonesia will head to the polls in one of the largest democratic elections in the world. President Joko Widodo will once again face Prabowo Subianto, in which many perceive to be a do-over of the bitter presidential race of 2014. Here to discuss the Indonesian election and the issues that are shaping it are Dirk Thompson, Senior Lecturer in Politics at La Trobe University. Welcome to you, Dirk. Thank you. And Dr. Dina Afrianti, Research Fellow at La Trobe Law School. Welcome to you, Dina. Thank you. So if we could wade into a bit of uh, how Widodo has done over the past four years, uh, his 2014 win can be attributed in part to his clean, no-frills image. How has that image fared in the past five years? I think uh, most of those who voted for Jokowi in 2014 still largely think that he's a clean candidate, uh, much better than any other politician in Indonesia. You say clean compared to other candidates, but does he still measure up to how he once did? Yeah, I think his cabinet, for example, is pretty much able to maintain a willingness to fight corruption, judging from the numbers of local uh, leaders, for example, who were caught by the National Commission of Anti-Corruption. Mm. Also, the members of parliament who were also caught by the KPK. And that's for many demonstrate that Jokowi is still has a strong commitment to eradicate corruption. And uh, when I said compared to other politicians, that's pretty much still a Jokowi image to many Indonesians voters. Given that, he's also able to form a coalition government that also consists of clean ministers and also, um, you know, his, his administration. Mm. So, yeah, voters who voted for him still consider him to be clear in terms of the corruption. But, of course, there are also many voters who think that Jokowi was not able to fulfill his campaign promises in regards to human rights. He promised to address the 1998 mass killing of student protests and also he promised to address those missing people in the 1990s. He has not fulfilled that campaign promises and also, of course, the 1965. So, so that's why many human rights defenders considered Jokowi has not been successful in terms of that. And that makes these uh, groups of um, civil society activists quite reluctant to vote for Jokowi this time around. But he's still the better alternative to many voters, though. We only have two candidates, so mm. I guess the same people who voted for Prabowo are still voting for Prabowo, and only there have been a lot of analysis saying that those who voted for Prabowo in 2014 uh, changed his mind. At the same time, those who voted for Jokowi in 2014 because they're disappointed, so they changed their mind. 
but instead of voting for Prabowo, they are probably not going to use their rights to vote mm. this time. Yeah, if you define clean just narrowly in regards to corruption, which is of course a major issue in Indonesia, then yes, Jokowi uh, has been a clean president. He has um, not been involved in any scandals and neither have any of his family members or close friends. The same was true for his predecessor for a very long time, but when in the final Yudha Yuno years, then members of his party became embroiled in corruption scandals, that image was a bit tarnished. And Yudha Yuno, of course, then eventually went out yeah, with his image quite tarnished. Jacobi so far has not been um, affected by any of that. But as Dina was saying, if we define or interpret clean as meaning more broadly democratic, reform-oriented or so, in that regard, he has dis- disappointed many supporters. Mm-hmm. But the alternative is Prabowo Subianto uh, with a very controversial human rights track record um, who has openly toyed with authoritarian ideas both in the 2014 campaign, not so much this time around, but um, just at his most recent campaign event just yesterday. Apparently he was supported quite heavily, again, by Islamist groups and um, his rhetoric was very much antagonistic and hostile again. So he tries to sort of repeat a little bit of what was happening in 2014. So the Jacobi supporters, when they're weighing up between the two candidates, even though he hasn't fulfilled all his promises, he has, in fact, in many respects, narrowed political space for dissent for some um, civil society groups, but he's still seen as the lesser of two evils as compared to Prabowo. Mm-hmm. What do you think of his choice of running mate and the incentive that he's trying to build by having such a hard right Muslim cleric? That's of course uh, disappointed so many Jokowi supporters because of his picks of running mate is very controversial given that Makruf Amin was quite instrumental in the leading up of the Jakarta's governor election where he plays his role in for example, being the key witness expert for the Ahok trial, for the mm-hmm. governors uh, of Basuki Cahaya Purnama trial, for the blasphemy. Many of Jokowi's supporters were very disappointed and actually quite angry with his pick. But it needs to be understood, I think Jokowi's was given with no option because during the 2014 election, he was attacked by the conservative Muslims for being not Muslim enough. He was even accused of being supporters of the Communist Party and that his political agenda is to give the Communist Party a space in Indonesian politics. So that's pretty much what happened during the 2014 election and and it continues until 2017 during the Ahok saga. And so that's probably one of the reasons why Jokowi ended up picking up Makruf Amin because he expected would help cast a wider net yeah yeah Yeah. and also and also there are a lot of people saying that he's not keen to see the society divided like you know the islamists and then also the you know those who are more progressive he hopes that islam will no longer be a significant issue during the election but Mm. i guess what happened is still islam is very much an election card and then Prabowo camps use again Islam's card to garner votes. That's pretty much what happened yesterday during the mass rally of Prabowo Subianto where although they said that this is not exclusive but it's very clear the invitation for people to come to the stadium is to do the Islamic 
prayer, the sunnah prayer in the middle of the night. Mm. This is like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, and then continue with the subuh prayer, which is the five of one of the five uh, Islamic prayer. I think that's one of the reasons why we see so many people in there, because it's not just about political campaign. It's about you need to show solidarity for all Muslims in Indonesia. So that's why let's come and then do this prayer. So he's using the timing of that to his advantage. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily everybody there to hear what he had to say. Yeah, because people start coming at 2 a.m., 1 a.m., uh, which never happened before because usually campaign mm-hmm. rally start like 10 or 11 mm-hmm. uh, during the day. But this is like 1 a.m., so, you know. But uh, Subiantos has been quite good at rallying and getting vocal attention, hasn't he, in this campaign? He's been seems to have been more of a, a stronger speaker than Joko Widodo has. Is that fair to say? Well, that's probably not too difficult to be a better speaker than Joko Widodo. He's very understated, uh, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Compared to 2014, I would say that Prabowo has been more subdued. Yesterday's campaign rally was the first where he's really gathered the masses and addressed them in the kind of rhetoric that we saw much more often and much more systematic in 2014. So in a sense, to go back to your previous question, Jokowi's choice of vice presidential candidate, even though many observers have said it wasn't actually his choice, it was sort of imposed on him, Mm -hmm. but it did help to diffuse the tension Mm -hmm. because up until 2019, the trajectory of Indonesian politics was towards ever more polarization between two camps. And Jokowi knew that this would not help him in the campaign. If religion becomes the number one issue in the campaign, he would probably lose out. Maybe not necessarily lose the election, but it would become a very tight race. So by picking a conservative cleric, he was able to diffuse that particular election issue. Prabowo still tried occasionally, but he quickly realized that it wouldn't be as successful as it was in 2014. So the focus of the campaign pretty much shifted towards economic issues. And only occasionally did religion really play a role in the official campaign. Mm. Slightly different matter amongst the supporters within social media. There was still a lot of um, hostility based around religious issues. But again, not quite as pronounced as many observers had feared Mm. in the run-up to the campaign. You've given me a segue, which is uh, to talk about economic issues, though. Jokowi made a lot of promises about that in the 2014 election. It's very hard for any politician to follow through and uh, say that they've fulfilled their economic promises. But do you think that he's got a strong position for that issue? Because it is the main issue of the election. There have been, say, a lot of photos of Jokowi standing in front of subway trains. Yeah. The timing with the opening of the underground in Jakarta. That, that was, was good timing. Yeah. That was great timing. And that's, of course, the most attention-grabbing, so shortly before the election and in the capital, etc. But his whole term was driven by the program to expand Indonesia's infrastructure. Every now and then he was able to pose not just in front of the subway in Jakarta, but also at airports or road openings or mm. new ports in some of the That's other the islands. the advantage of the incumbent to be able to stand in yeah. front of impressive things that you've achieved. Yeah. yeah. So on that front, even though there were some setbacks in the infrastructure drive, overall he's got some successes there which he could use. So he could play the incumbency card quite successfully. On broader economic matters, yes, he promised an economic growth rate of 7%. He did not achieve that. On average, it was just over 5%. 
But overall, the most macroeconomic indicators were okay. And the one that matters most for Indonesian voters is inflation. And inflation was low throughout its term. Mm. So most people feel that they are not worse off now than they were mm. five years ago. So in the eyes of a lot of voters, his economic track record is okay. Yeah, yeah. A lot of nodding from you, Dina. I recently went to Jakarta and I saw the infrastructure things is really a major achievement for Jokowi. And Did you ride the subway? No, not yet. Not oh, yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. But I know a lot of friends, for example, was very excited with the new Trans Java, which, you know, now for many people who works in Jakarta, they can drive through Surabaya only in like 10 hours. Usually in the past, they need to spend like, you know, 24 or, you know, even four days on the road, especially during holiday season. So mm-hmm. for many Japanese, for example, this is a huge achievement and, and they're very grateful for Jokowi f- to be able to do that. And going back to the economy, I, I think I need to also mention about, I think uh, one of Jokowi's big success is with the uh, healthcare program. I think it's the biggest also in the world. It's not perfect, but Jokowi has been seen to be able to give like cheap and affordable health care for Indonesians poor. That is considered really important and also a big achievement for Jokowi. Mm. On the opposing side, what's Subianto bringing to the table? Because if this is the biggest election issue, I'm assuming there's something along the lines of a, a flower on every windowsill kind of promise. <laughs> Wonderful analogy. <laughs> <laughs> They have struggled. Again, the advantage of incumbency plays into Jokowi. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there would have been opportunities to put forward an alternative vision or improvements or whatever. But Jokowi has been reasonably smart in fending off most of these issues. Prabowo himself hasn't had too much to say about it. His um, running mate, uh, his vice presidential candidate, Santiago Uno, is a businessman and he has tried to exploit economic issues more systematically but especially in the beginning of the campaign he often picked issues that didn't really resonate with many voters Mm. often it was um, only relevant for say the middle class so he was making comparisons with singapore for example whereas lots of indonesians (laughs) have never been to singapore so can't relate to that Mm -hmm. so they've sort of struggled to exploit the loophole. So, for example, with the growth rate, Jacobi promised 7%. It didn't achieve that. Suppose maybe in a Western campaign context, that would be really sort of hammered home by the opposition. You didn't, mm. you were not able to actually lift the economy significantly. Um, but they haven't really capitalized on that. Mm. Haven't found the right access to voters on these issues. And instead, yeah, Prabowo has spoken about, you know, protectionism, the fact that Indonesia's resources are Mm. being exploited by foreigners and that we should be more self-reliant, etc. But that doesn't really strike such a chord anymore as it did in 2014. So for the first time ever, Indonesia is holding simultaneous legislative and presidential elections and voters will be presented with five different ballot papers. (laughs) Mm-hmm. be a bit confusing I imagine no matter what the colour they are um, so what are your thoughts on this and how will it affect how people vote yeah this is the first time ever for mm. Indonesians to go at the same time to vote for representatives for the regional provincial and national parliament and also the presidents and of course I guess the idea is five years ago it was 
a long campaign years, and it's expensive and time-consuming. It's expen- expensive, and, yeah. and you know, with the logistical issues and with the corruptions and so on and so forth. So the idea to put it at the same time, but again, yeah, I don't know if the National uh, Election Commission have already considered how long will one voters need to work on their ballot paper. That will be interesting to see. Well, the most important thing that people have speculated about with this new format is that there will be a so-called coattail effect, meaning that because for the first time ever presidential elections are on the same day as parliamentary elections, the focus the main attention will be on the presidential election mm-hmm. and the parties with whom the presidential candidates are most closely affiliated will get more votes as a result of that. Sure. Both candidates are nominated by a coalition of parties, but both are most closely affiliated with one party. So Jacobi with the PDIP mm. and Prabowo with the Gurindra party. Public opinion surveys up to now have been saying that indeed those two parties are leading now. So for PDIP, it's not too unusual. They also won the last election. But for Gurindra, it would be the first time that they would come in second in the parliamentary election. So they have benefited slightly. However, nowhere near as much as theories of coattailing would have predicted. Instead, the fragmentation of support for political parties seems to be just as prominent as it has been in previous elections. At the moment, we have 10 parties in parliament, and it looks as if eight, maybe nine, will enter parliament again. There's a threshold of 4%. Uh, Some of the established parties may struggle to fulfill it, Mm -hmm. and practically all of the new parties are expected to struggle. Maybe one or two will make it, but most Mm -hmm. of them will struggle. In terms of whether it will confuse voters, I don't think so, because in 2014, they already had a similar kind of task to fulfill. Mm -hmm. The presidential election was separate, but they had four votes at the same time, parliamentary elections at national, provincial, and district level, plus the so-called upper house, the regional representative council. So now it's one more, but arguably the easiest is the additional one, the presidential one. So I don't think it will affect the number of invalid votes or whatever. It's more interesting to watch whether there will be an impact on the voting patterns, whether presidential vote will be aligned to party vote. Yeah. And uh, what do you think of the gender quota on the party applications? So this is something that's been established for Mm. the last few elections, that you need to have one female candidate for every two male candidates. And the way that the preferences are, there's less women candidates being listed first as a preference. So just wondering what, what your thoughts are about how that's being approached if it's even needed, if there's resistance to it being applied. Yeah, I think this uh, 2019 election, women's candidates uh, make up almost 40%, 38% of the total candidates, which is slightly higher than in 2014. But even in 2014, there were like 35 or 34% of female candidates, but they ended up only have... 18% 18% at the national parliament also. And the issue, I think, is because the zipper system where one woman, two men, it's only introduced in 2008. Before, it requires, you know, 30% female candidates. It is important for the party to put female candidates 
on the top of the list. Mm. But with the zipper system where they're not requiring political parties to put female candidates on top of the list that most of the party then put women on the second or the third. And if you vote just for the top one, if you're just voting for a party, yeah. your votes go to the first person. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's one of the problems why women activists, for example, have been calling the government or the political parties to put women on top of the list because, yes, we have 18% of female representatives, but what does it tell about having women's interests or agenda on the government policy that's that's the main issue right oh, so so it being mandated at all yeah so and the problem is also because most of the political parties do not have a clear gender agenda mm. and these female politicians they also have to follow what's the agenda of the political parties that's why uh, having 17% or 18% of female representation in the national parliament does not correlate with the advancement of women's rights or gender equality. And one of the examples is the Indonesian parliament have been discussing and drafted the uh, sexual violence bill since 2017, but until now they haven't finalized it. This is almost finished, so that means probably we have to wait for the new member of parliament to be sworn in and then wait for them to restart again. We don't know, so yeah. Mm, mm. In addition to what Dina has said, I think one problem in the past has been, especially in the last election in 2014, has been that the costs of campaigning have mm. really exploded in Indonesia. It's generally widely believed that female candidates have less resources to run efficient campaigns as compared to male counterparts. So even where female candidates have an advantageous position on the list, in the actual campaign, they're often at a disadvantage at their better resourced male counterparts. Mm. Um, so that's one reason why less uh, female candidates get elected. In 2014, there were quite a few rather prominent members of parliament who failed to secure re-election and they openly claimed that yeah. it was because of the economic dimension of the campaign, that they just didn't have the resources to compete. Mm. So those who do end up in parliament are often well connected to mm. influential families. They often have relatives who are already sitting in parliament or in cabinet or are influential otherwise. And then, as Dina said, they enter parliament, but will not necessarily become proponents of women's issues in parliament, but rather represent issues that are relevant to their immediate family networks, etc. Yeah. So about 40% of eligible voters are millennials aged 17 to 35. I feel very old. Uh, how key is the youth vote to the Indonesian election and uh, who's been courting it well? Yes, there's a very large proportion of young voters in the election, but it seems to me as if their vote is almost as fragmented as the vote of the overall population. Yeah. So at least when it comes to the parliamentary election. Yeah. In the presidential election, they obviously only have two choices. As far as the presidential contenders are concerned, I don't even know if there's a clear preference, but Santiago Uno, the vice presidential candidate of Prabowo Subianto, he was the one who has most systematically tried to recruit young voters. Mm -hmm. He's not exactly super young, uh -uh. but he comes across as quite youthful and being able to connect with young voters. Mm. He's appeared at various events aimed at millennials and speaking of his own career and his success in business and what they could do to emulate that, etc. Uh, so he has certainly tried to directly speak to young voters. 
how successful that will be in the end um, we'll have to see because ultimately you will still run with Prabovo. Jokowi, I think, is not specifically targeting uh, young voters. Well, I think with Jokowi has a very strong appeal towards young voters and given his background as a successful businessman from village level that has been used to attract uh, young voters and that sort of have relevance and can relate to young voters especially those who are not having a privileged background like Sandiaga Jokowi's campaign on you know everyone can be an entrepreneur like me because I don't have also you know background on this but you know I just work and that has been quite successful Jokowi's maybe most successful attempt at targeting young voters was in one of the presidential debates, which mm. was on live television, where he challenged Prabovo, mm. what Prabovo would do Mm-mm. to increase the number of unicorns in Uh-oh. Indonesia. Yeah, and yeah. Prabovo had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> oh, right. So he was using some sort of street slang kind of... Well, it's not street slang as such. It but, you re- know, you It refers to startups were worth at least $1 billion dollar creative business ideas so I, I i can speak in their language exactly yeah and you can't even speak in their language let alone give me an answer yeah. and yeah. what you're going to do yeah and that received a massive echo then in social media yes you know, uh, yes you know, memes floating everywhere about <laughs> unicorns but it wasn't so effective that you didn't need to google it for a few minutes to give me an answer <laughs> <laughs> but one other thing that i might say is that in the parliamentary election one of the new parties yeah. has presented itself as specifically a party for millennials. Yeah. Um, it only allows people under 45 in its leadership board, mm-hmm. and its entire identity is framed around appealing to young voters. Yeah. Are they going to get it in, though? And in public opinion surveys, it's faring at around 1%. The leader of the party is a female, And they use all the terms, you know, that is used mostly by Indonesians, especially those in urban cities. So yeah. they call bro and sis because the Islamic parties will use the brother and, you know, using the Arabic terms, but they use bro and sis. And they've been su- quite successful, I think, in uh, recruiting female candidates. And 47% of their candidates are female Their platform is for Indonesia to maintain its pluralist identity. Mm-hmm. The chairwoman is a Christian Chinese female, so triple minority. They belong to the Jokowi's Makruf Amin coalition. Mm-hmm. So, mm. are either of you brave enough to make an election prediction? I know that academics generally don't like to make a prediction, but if you had to. I'm just happy to say that I trust some of the pollsters and they mostly predicted Jokowi victory. Or basically, all of them predicted Jokowi victory. The gap between them differs from pollster to pollster, but virtually every reliable pollster at the moment has Jokowi way over 50%. So given that it's only a bit more than a week to go, it seems very unlikely that Prabowo will be able to catch up for the parliamentary election i just say that yeah it's likely that we'll see a very fragmented parliament again with lots of different parties yeah. in the sort of single digit just between five and ten percent so 2014 all over again mm. yeah i think there will be a lot of similarities to the results then. yeah dina that's nice to hear that from a political scientist <laughs> <laughs> i trust the pollsters as well but given what happened only a year ago with the jakarta governorial election where people were scared using religious sentiments. So 
I think many Indonesians, many voters are also scared that they are going to use the same strategy mm. by telling people that if you not vote for a candidate who is going to defend Islam, you're going to go to the hell. That's exactly what was used. There are some scared that the same strategy might be used by the Prabowo camp. But let's hope that's not going to happen. So following their optimisms, I should say that, you know, I trust that some of the polters might be right. I'm sure Prabowo will have more votes in the end yes, than he currently has in the exactly. polls because there's still a large number of undecided and swing voters. Undecided some swing will move voters. to Prabowo. Some may not say that they will vote for Prabowo yeah. now. But as I said, in terms of statistic probability, the gap is quite large. It seems quite unlikely that yeah. he'll be able to swing that. Mm. The difference with 2014 is civil society is not as strong as before. They're fragmented. That's another issue. Although there are human rights defenders who are actively campaigning not to vote, not voting for Jokowi or not voting for Prabowo. So these people are using social media to also, you know, voice their concern and also, for, you know, their, their agenda. It's just the goal put. The goal put, yeah. The donkey vote. The donkey vote, yeah. yeah. From what I've been observing, young voters can relate to that. And then the idea that uh, whoever going to win my life will not change my life. Well, thank you both for your time today, and uh, we'll have to see how the election pans out. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or your local friendly neighbourhood podcasting service. You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. You can follow Dina Afrianti on Twitter. She's Afri Lover. That's A-F-R-I-L-L-U-V-A. And Dirk missed the Twitter train. <laughs> the Twitter subway. (laughs) I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.